Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Hey, King's Cross family, Oscar Navarro here uh, preaching from my house. We do have a brand new puppy, Corgi. So if you uh, hear barking in the background, my bad. Um, You know, a a few months ago, back in, I think it was January, when this entire kind of global pandemic thing started, we were actually preaching through a series on um, the little book, really a letter called Titus in the New Testament. Um, And we, we took a break from that being in this pandemic. Uh, and went through the attributes of God and a few other sermons similar to that. But today, we're actually going to go back in and pick up where we left off in the book of Titus. So for those of you who joined our church or are watching online, we're not a part of those Sunday morning service way back when, before COVID-19, if you want, you can go back onto our website and listen to those sermons. Just a handful. I think we were like three or four in. Uh, You don't need to, though. I'm going to go ahead and and kind of give us a quick overview, um, and uh, we'll pick up where we left off. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, bless this sermon, Lord. Um, Allow your words of Titus to seep into our hearts and help us reorient our hearts uh, onto who you are and what you've done for us, God. Um, I pray that if I have prepared anything in vain, um, that you would allow me to forget it and help me just to preach your word, God. Um, Thank you so much for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So to review, um, Titus is is a book written by the Apostle Paul to uh, his disciple, Titus. And Titus is on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean that goes by the name of Crete. Interesting enough, this island actually still exists, and it's still named Crete. Now, uh, we, we, I want to give us a quick overview on uh, what the cultural dynamics were in Titus, because for us to be able to understand really any book of the Bible, we need to know who wrote it, who it was written to, and why. Um, Cretan culture... One, it was uh, a beautiful island, um, and it was rich. It had a lot of money. It was right in the middle of the Mediterranean. But Cretan culture was also incredibly corrupt. It was not something that we would admire. Women um, were uh, celebrated promiscuity and independence over humility and family. And the Cretan men were known and proud of being abusive and untrustworthy. As a matter of fact, a very common um, job for a Cretan man was to be a mercenary. 
And if you think about the dynamics of where they were at, they're on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. So it wasn't hard for, you know, a Cretan man to get a job, go on to the mainland of Greece, take care of his target, and then escape back to Crete on an island where he was celebrated. No one was going to turn him in, and certainly no one was going to come looking for him. Essentially, these guys were like the Mandalorians of the Mediterranean. I was really proud of that, by the way, coming up with that one. If you don't know that reference, uh, you need to repent and watch The Mandalorian. All right, so Cretan culture, uh, not exactly something that we would admire. On top of that, uh, they also very much uh, worshipped appreciated the uh, the Greek god Zeus. Um, they looked up to him as a leader. Uh, and I mean, that's weird. <laughs> Zeus was uh, abusive with his power and promiscuous with leaders. And what, what we learned, what what uh, Chris taught us through the first two chapters of Titus was that the admiration for Zeus, uh, Zeus's style of leadership actually had crept into the church. Like Paul was astounded that people in the church were admiring, respecting, appreciating leaders that were abusive with their power, that were promiscuous with men, and that that type of respect and honor for a leader actually crept into the leadership characters of those following the church. So uh, in those opening chapters, we learn, we're reminded that a Christian leader is one that leads with humility and grace and seeks to know and understand and promote godly truth. He also reminded us that women and men too should seek out humility uh, and, and live out godly lives. What's really neat about those opening chapters, what we've learned is that God ultimately, um, so as, as Paul addresses leaders, individuals, husbands, wives, men and women, both old and young, what we learn in the opening chapters of Titus is that God is seeking to redeem the individual. And in redeeming the individual, God wants to redeem the family. And by redeeming the family, he is really seeking to create for himself a church that will be in the world that will seek out his kingdom. So for you and I, this is the the big theme in Titus. We are members, Christians are members of God's kingdom. And as members of God's kingdom, uh, we are able to, we have a desire to say no to a lifestyle that's inconsistent with God's generous love. And by saying no to a lifestyle inconsistent with God's generous love, we are able to uh, reject the things that are uh, unworthy of praise in our culture uh, and then seek out transformation through our neighbors by loving them. That is the ultimate ultimate uh, theme in Titus. He is redeeming the individual to redeem the family, to create for himself a a people that are a part of his kingdom that will be in the world uh, empowered by his transforming work in them so that they will seek out justice and reconciliation and holiness uh, specifically by loving their neighbors. Now, uh, our sermon this morning, we're picking up on uh, Titus 2 chapter 11. Nope. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And our uh, the title of the sermon this morning is called The Christian Life. And we've got three points. It is animation, which is grace appeared, motivation, which is the blessed hope, and culmination, which is set apart. Let's go ahead and start with animation. And uh, we're going to read verse 11 here. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. David Zoll, the theologian, argues that there are two kinds of law. There is the capital law, L law, and there's the lowercase L law. The capital L law is the thing that we probably are thinking about. It is the Ten Commandments, the do's and the don'ts of the scriptures. Don't lie, don't steal, don't have any false idols. But but uh, Luther, uh, the famous report, reformer, points out that there is another law at play in every single one of us, both Christian and non-Christian. And it is what Zal calls the lowercase all. Uh, Luther called it actually our constant guest. The constant guest in our consciousness, this is, he, he thinks it's for everybody, is the pressure that we feel every hour of every day to feel validated, loved, or worthy. Now, it's important to recognize that both the church and the unchurch feel this entirely, which is ironic because the secular, uh, the secular worldview would, would argue that what they want is to be free from the oppressive moral expectation of organized religion. But what Luther and Zoll point out is that, uh, that there is no true freedom from law unless you are free in Christ. And I mean, if you think about it, like uh, being free from not thinking highly of the law of God doesn't actually free you from all forms of law because we still have the law of this present age. That is the pressure and the feel of always trying to keep up and feel validated, right? So think about it like this. Think about the girl, and I know I've said this before, but I think it's important. Think about the girl that is walking down the street at the Irvine spectrum, not thinking anything of organized religion. Is she free from the law? Or is she not feeling the pressure from all of the advertisements that she should look a certain way, that she should be self-actualized and validated and independent, that her life should be looking a certain way and headed in a particular direction. Certainly she's feeling the law of the present age. Or look at like the way that the present age has created this online cancel culture where like if you don't say the right thing at the right time, even when you're trying to agree with somebody, you can still be canceled. It's basically like a modernized, bastardized version of uh, honor shame culture. It is all shame and no honor. See, the point that I'm making here is that like everybody is subject to Law. We are all constantly wanting, desiring to be, feel validated and worthy and loved. Uh, we also do this in our marriages, right? Like, as a matter of fact, uh, Brian Seitz turned me on a, to a book called uh, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And um, it points out that ultimately what goes wrong in a marriage 
is that we start keeping records, that we start wanting them to be validated and for us to be justified. In other words, in our marriages, we start creating our own forms of law and then holding each other against them. Here's a quote from the book. The vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-actualization. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. Misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. Here's my point. This present age does not want us to be free from the law. It really just wants us to be subject to its own law. David Zoll says it like this. What this reveals to us is that everyone is religious, not just those who believe in God or go to church. Works righteousness, the attempt to justify yourself by works of the law, is the default mode of human operation. The law reigns over all creation. While the law of man and the law of God says do this, the gospel says it has been done, right? Um, this, this is, when we look back on the cross, we know that we are free from condemnation. First, we are free from the just wrath of God, uh, breaking the, his moral law, but we are also free from any form of condemnation that this world or that constant guess in our mind has to offer us. We never have to justify ourselves because we've been justified. We never have to uh, prove that we are love or worthy because Jesus has proved that we are love, that we are worthy by dying on the cross for us. Therefore, all of our validation, all of our worth, anything that we ever truly desire to prove of ourselves has already been proven in Christ, which then frees us from all of that and allows us to simply rest in the fact that his grace has appeared. David Zoll says it like this, while the law is conditional, a two-way street, the gift of Christ is unconditional. Like all true gifts, it arrives unbidden, a great and glorious surprise for those who don't deserve one. His affection cannot be leveraged or merited. It is a gift with no strings attached. Jesus simply gave his attention, his power, his very self, and to the wrong people. In the cross, the all-encompassing love of God speaks louder than his voice of condemnation. God's love satisfies rather than introduces expectations. If the law commands that we love perfectly, the gospel announces that we are perfectly loved. That is the grace that has appeared. Now let's look at verse 12. It says it is train that same grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. We have been justified. However, the grace of God is also sanctifying us. 
those are two important theological words um, that I truly believe every Christian should have a good understanding of the difference between justification and sanctification. So I'm just going to spend about three to five minutes here describing the two, um, because again, this is something that we should all perfectly understand well. Justification is has everything to do with our standing or our relationship with God. Um, by us saying that we are justified by God, it means that He has fully and completely forgiven us of our sins. We go, our standing before God goes from rebel to sons and daughters. And that justification, His work on the cross is His work and His alone. There is nothing that we can do to ever add or take away from His justifying work for us on the cross. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. And that is good news for us. It means that uh, it means that it is his work and we are recipients of that grace. So it is our standing before God. However, anybody who has been justified, that is all Christians justified, standing before God, anybody who's been justified enters in to a lifelong, pro- lifelong process called sanctification. And sanctification is God's work that he's doing in you. It is a gift from him to make you more like his son. It is growing you to become more Christ-like. Justification is what we call, what theologians would call monergistic. That means monergistic is just a fancy way of saying that's God's work and God's work alone. Sanctification is what a theologian would say is synergistic. That means both you and God are working. It is his power, but it is your discipline. It is your work to be done, to be done, to grow, to become more like Jesus. This is important because there are there are many people who would view their uh, they would view grace in an abusive manner. They may look at their Christian life and go, "Okay, cool. God has forgiven me of my sin. I can pretty much live my life and treat God as like my motivational speaker, like my Christian version of Tony Robbins." Um, And the grace thing, like the sin thing, I don't really have to worry about that because he's got that covered. I'm not really thinking about holiness or righteousness or becoming more like him. That is an abusive view of grace. If you're not being trained by grace, you're likely not experiencing the grace of God. Us being sanctified is not just us becoming more morally right people. Sanctification is, and ultimately the gospel, is not just about um, a right view on sexuality or being morally right individuals, right? Like if Christianity is just another moral code, then it's no different than all the other moral codes that we find out there. Like if Christianity is all about moral code, then then why are we here every single Sunday? it's, It's just not necessary. But Christianity is not about a moral code. It is about uh, God's glory and his work on the cross. And when we truly realize, experience, and see that, then it will do nothing else but transform us. Now, uh, our transformation starts with repentance. 
And and it continues through our entire life. Uh, we live a life of continual repentance. And repentance is ultimately what verse 12 is all about. And recognize that the word repentance is actually not here, but it is uh, a practical outworking of repentance. Let's read it. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness, that is to say no to these things, ungodliness and worldly passions, and then say yes to living a life of self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Here's the thing. This is all about our processes and our passions. What Paul is reminding us is that we need to turn from what he calls ungodliness and worldly passions and reorient our heart towards the things of God, self-control, upright lives, and godly lives. Uh, and, uh, and, and ultimately, what self-control means is uh, is Self-control is like another word for sober, to live sober lives uh, or sensible lives, to to keep your mind um, clear and straight on the things of the Lord. And so like the best example that I have of this is if if you grew up uh, going to the ocean, surfing in junior lifeguards, you were taught how to know when you're caught in a current. And for those of you who know, you swim out into the water and what you basically do is you find like a marker on the land and if you see that you're drifting left or right of that marker or if that marker is getting smaller and smaller it means you're caught in a current and then you're taught to remove yourself from that current so to live sober sensible lives is a calling on all of us to not get caught up in the chaos in the currents of this present age that will sweep us out into a sea of uncertainty, but rather to keep our minds, our eyes, and our hearts fixated on God and his promises and who he is and what he is doing in our lives. And to live an upright life is, uh, is to seek out, we talked about this a few week, weeks ago, Upright is a straight arrow. That is to seek out, to live a life of justice and mercy. Here's, here's ultimately how we do this. To turn from things, because it's that's the thing. How, how do we do that? Like, how is it that so many of us get up, caught up in uncertainty when we know the promises of God? How often do we get caught up in uh, sin issues? How often do we like get angry at all the same things, get jealous over the same things, um, become uncertain about the same things? Like We continually find ourselves in the repetitious nature of our sins. And why? Why do we do that? Paul's reminding us that, that we need to repent. We need to change our views, our perspectives, our liturgies. I actually have a good example of this. Uh, a few weeks ago, I came across this bike online. It's an e-bike. And man, the company, like they killed it when it came to designing this bike. They made it look like an old school cafe racer. Uh, and I mean, it is it is a rad bike. Um, so, you know, I see it. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I look up what kind of a bike it is. I look up the company and the cost. I find them on Instagram. I follow them. And then I see a couple of pictures. I like one of them. Then like someone mentioned something about YouTube and having bikes on there. So I go to YouTube and now I'm watching 
videos of the bike. Uh, and then eventually a few days later, I find this thread of all these dudes that are like modding out their bikes. And so then I start following that thread, right? And before you know it, like I'm hooked on wanting this bike. And so I find out that they've got a headquarters in Irvine. So, I mean, like I went and test drove the bike. Kelly was worried that I was going to come home with one. We'll get to that. Uh, here's the thing. What ended up happening was, you know, this is like a slow trickle effect. I, I, maybe once a day I see a picture of the bike because now it's like on my, you know, social media radar on YouTube. I'll see a video of the bike or whatever the case, but here's what ends up happening is the other day, like I'm outside playing with the kids on, and I'm like, man, I could, I could be on that bike right now. Or like I went to the gym, I'm like, man, I could be riding that bike to the gym. Or like I went to the grocery store, I'm like, oh, dude, like I could be riding the bike right now to the grocery store. Like the idea of the bike just like all of a sudden made me not able to to enjoy my children because I was just thinking like, oh, but if I had the bike, here's what I'm getting at. I made a change in my liturgy in my process, in my practice. And it was so subtle. But what it did was it fixated my eyes on the bike. Uh, And it changed the way I was able to enjoy my own family. And, And so what Paul is saying here is that we need to adjust our liturgy. We need to adjust our process and practice away from this present age and fixate it on God. So why am I bringing up the bike? Because I bought it. Uh, I haven't told Kelly yet. I figured I'd bring it up right now because it's Father's Day and I'm in the middle of a sermon and she can't get upset. Nah, I didn't. I didn't buy the bike. Uh, I'm not going to lie though. I do secretly hope that when I'm done with the sermon, I'm going to go downstairs and it's going to be like sitting there with a bow, which would be really cool. Probably not going to happen. Here's the summary of that first part. If we pursue righteousness out of a desire to prove ourselves or prove our worth or prove our salvation, we will find ourselves becoming people who view themselves as morally superior. Um, that is that is a pursuit of the law, uh, not a proper understanding of grace. On the other hand, um, And that kind of person becomes incredibly judgmental and accusational, um, and and they find themselves, again, having moral superiority. On the other hand, if we're the kind of person, uh, or I should say times in our lives, we're not thinking much about sin, and we're just kind of going, you know what, God's going to cover the whole sin-grace issue, and I'm just going to do my thing, we also have not had a proper understanding of grace. So what is a gospel-centered understanding of sanctification? I think the the answer to that is back in verse 10, which uh, uh, Chris preached on, which is Paul tells us to adorn the doctrine of God. 
And if you remember, to adorn something is to find it so lovely and so beautiful that it affects you and that you just simply display it. Like when he preached and I heard him talking about adorning uh, and he was giving examples of that, the example that I thought of is the way like the Jamesons and the Willits, uh, the Donahues, like the way uh, you guys and others show up the church for the first time with your new baby. You're adorning that child and like you're just enjoying the newness of this life and you're so proud of it and you're putting it on display and everyone recognizes that this is just a beautiful, wonderful moment. You are adorning it. Uh, My point is when we really come to understand the grace of God, we will adore him and we will display him. It's not much different than the way kids want to be like their parents, right? Like I remember seeing the girl, watching the girls uh, watch Kelly get ready. And then they would like go into their room and they would go try to find clothes that would match Kelly's clothes. Uh, Or the other day, you know, I asked Levi, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he's like, I don't know, dad, what do you do? And I told him, he goes, I want to do that. Right? Like our kids, all kids, like at a certain point, until a certain point, they adore their family. They adore their parents. They want to be like them. When we understand the grace of God, we see him as our father in heaven. We're not going to try to prove our salvation and we're not going to ignore our sin. What we do is that we find God so lovely and we find Jesus so wonderful that we can't help but adore, display, want to become more and more like him, which is why we need to fix our eyes on him. Five more minutes here and then we're going to close up. Next part is uh, verse 13. As if looking back on the cross, because what we just did is is we talked about the thing that animates us. The thing that animates us is the grace of God. And the thing that motivates us is in verse 13. Read it with me. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what's amazing about the Bible is that it shows us that we are like almost, uh, we're like the peanut butter and jelly sandwich in this amazing gospel story. By the way, that sentence is the reason why I will never become a theologian. It's because I just used a, a sandwich to describe the plan of salvation. Here's my point. As Christians, we have the cross to look back on, and we have the re- the coming of Jesus to look forward to. You know, one of my favorite books uh, in the Lord of the Rings series, we're going through that right now with the kids. One of my favorite books, we're not there yet, but it's, it's the last book. And it's interesting, if you've read them, the last book is actually the darkest one. Like, friends are dying or turning into enemies. Um, that evil becomes more and more powerful in that book. And even like the hopeful, happy Frodo Baggins finds himself in ultimate despair in the middle of the book. But the theme that keeps everybody fighting forward on is the prophecy that the king will return. And that's the name of the book, The Return of the King. And when he comes back, uh, his kingdom will be good and rule. And so they're fighting for his kingdom to come back. Man, the point is, is that while we're animated by the cross, we're also motivated by the return of the king, knowing that Jesus is coming back. And so 
while this present age becomes a constant distraction for us, sapping us of our joy and uh, often making us question our worth and our value, we need to fixate our eyes on the promise that the king is coming back and he seeks to uh, bring about his kingdom in and through us, which is the last verse that we're going to go through uh, verse 14, the culmination or being set apart. Here's what it says. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It goes on to say that, uh, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I want to point out that being set apart does not mean that we isolate and are removed from the culture by no means. Being set apart is being redeemed and set apart within the culture to go to work. This is the idea that, that Christ isn't against culture, but Christ is over culture. Because again, Crete is a not great uh, island. And Paul could have easily said to Titus, Titus, go and find a bunch of people, convert them, and then there's all these other islands in the Greek islands, like start a village, a Christian village, a Christian subculture over there and remove yourself. And like, yeah, go into town every now and then, grab some food, hand out a gospel tract, but, but try not to interact as often as possible with the culture. That is not uh, the plan of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to be engaged, a part of culture. He doesn't want us to isolate or separate or create Christian subculture. Rather, he wants to redeem our cities in our communities in and through his church. So he is setting us apart, uh, but within and one other thing, I want you to see that he is purifying for himself a people. This is our last point, a people. What he means by that is that uh, God's plan for you, and it is great, and it is beautiful, and it is wonderful, but God's plan for you, uh, his plan of one salvation, his plan of uh, sanctifying you, growing you to be more Christ-like, and his plan to use you uh, for redemption and reconciliation is ultimately meant to happen in the context of a local gospel-centered community, also known as the church. That is what he means when he is purifying himself a people. We need to see our story, uh, which is God's story, in, in context of our local church. And this is the best way that I can describe it. Like our kids, if you've ever been to our house, our kids love Legos and books. That's, that's what their rooms are full of. Um, and Levi specifically, he's got boxes of Legos and they're all just destroyed individual pieces. Uh, and every now and then he'll build something and it'll be really cool, but then he'll destroy it and get rid of it. But the few things that he has that he absolutely loves, uh, these are his dragons his spaceships, his castles, those things are up on display on his bookshelf. And he loves those things. He's proud of those things. And those toys are always a part of every adventure that he has. That is, uh, that is what, what Paul is saying here is that we are God's prized possessions, that you were picked out um, 
and that you were put together to be a part of something bigger than your individual self in which God seeks to redeem and sanctify to grow you up so that you could be his prized possession and used in his kingdom. That is the calling on all of our lives. That is what Titus is ultimately all about. So And in the coming weeks, as we continue to explore Titus, I pray and I hope that you would see yourself as a part of a gospel-centered community that is God's prized possession. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.